The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jen Grace Byrne. Jen is the co-author of Dare to Inspire, along with Alison Hoser and Sandra Sapporo. They were curious to answer the question, how can we sustain inspiration in work and life? And they've spent 20 years speaking to hundreds of people to understand the methods, situation and environment that needs to be created for sustainable inspiration to occur. So my first question was quite obvious to me. What inspired her? We know entrepreneurship is not easy. There are going to be days that really suck. On those days, what will make this worthwhile? What is the difference that we want to make that will make sucky days worthwhile, essentially? And so we dove into that question and we talked about what we were most proud of creating in our careers, what we stood for in the world, what wild success we had witnessed looked like, what the best organizations looked like, the best leaders, the best teams. And the word that kept coming up was inspiration. Defining inspiration is tough. Even Webster in the dictionary used the word inspire to define what inspiration was. And yet Jen and the team spent many years, hundreds of hours, and spoke to thousands of people to understand what really defined inspiration for them. Traditionally, we've thought about inspiration as something that happens to you. Like if you're lucky and you're walking down the street and you see something, right? Or some kind of a muse that you turn to, to be inspired. And what we found through the interviews is that's not how it works at all. It's completely something that you can generate and it's a muscle that can be developed And what it evolved into is really an understanding for us that it's a most valuable resource to be managed in organizations. Well, this is really interesting to me, right? Because so many things that often people feel are intuitive or serendipitous, uh, such as maybe inspiration people would find, when there's ways that there's systems that people can create and circumstances that they can create is super powerful because people can learn it and then they can apply it and know when they need it. So what were some of the characteristics that jumped out to you about creating these circumstances for people to create inspiration for themselves? Yeah. Three distinct categories of how we get inspired. The first one is how we inspire ourselves. And it's actually fairly straightforward and not a lot of surprises, but really important because of the agency piece, right? That we have a lot of control over this. The second category is how we get inspired through and with others or by others. And oftentimes that's in relationships. And then the third distinct category is how we're inspired through situations. So it was kind of a nice, tidy math pattern that came forward. There are really six distinct engines that we found in each. We call them engines. They're the predictable pathways that people use to inspire themselves. Okay, so this is great. There's myself, there's working with people in my environment. Yeah. 
So how do I get started with myself? What were the sort of the counterintuitive things that I maybe think, well, I'm going to get inspired? What did you find? So counterintuitive, I would say one that kept popping up a lot and wasn't super counterintuitive for me, but I don't think we think about this as a pathway for inspiration necessarily was around movement and presence. So it's always been important to me, but I'm not alone that actually people like to move. <laughs> we are, we were born to move. We were born to use our bodies. And so one of the ways to predictably spark inspiration is to really be present with the world around you, to actually have a relationship with the world around you, notice it This falls into the category of meditation and mindfulness, but then walking, like even walking, people walk a lot to get inspired. Well, this is kind of interesting for me, right? There's Lots of sort of classic instantiations of this in uh, the world of product development, for instance. Really? Right. So like a lot of the workshops that we use now, inspired by design thinking, mm. where you're up on your feet, you're writing post-its, you're moving things around on canvases. There's a lot of body movement. It's not sitting in your chair and just typing at a desk, right? It's trying to uh, essentially spark because you're on your feet, you're going to think better. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there's legendary stories of Sunday afternoons, Bill Campbell and Steve Jobs taking walks around to describe like how they would figure out the next move that they might want to make at Apple. Yes. Right? All, yeah. All I mean, walking meetings of, are big in Silicon Valley, right? Well, yeah. well it's, it's inspired by these sorts of stories, mm. I'm sure. Right. Mm. But it, I'm kind of curious again, like some of these for people with things that they can start to do, like what were some of the examples that sort of helped you identify that? The other thing that came up in that is the importance of nature Right. So people often, when you asked about what is a go-to for you for inspiration, a walk in the woods came up a lot. Walking with a dog in the woods came up a lot. So one of the things we train is called a reset ritual. And there are hundred ways to reset yourself. And you know, anything from something you can do within 10 seconds to three minutes. And one of the reset rituals that we train is like stair climbing to your favorite jam, taking 10 minutes to take 10 flights of stairs or more, and really listening to a theme song for you that gets you in the right state of mind, not necessarily always pumped up, but based on the task at hand and maybe what meeting you're going into next, do you need more grounded stability or do you need more innovation and flexibility? I know my listeners are like loving this, right? Because everybody wants like interesting rituals. I love this word, like to prepare for things. Yeah. So I'm going into a difficult conversation. Mm. What's a great way to prepare? And listening to maybe calming music or focusing music and, and pacing or whatever that might be. What were some of the other interesting ones that popped up? Oh, you mean in terms of reset rituals? Yeah. Oh, there's yeah, there's so many. I mean, so here's What's your one, favorite one. One of my favorites is actually applying lip balm. Yeah. And as you can see, I'm wearing some. I actually put some on the drive over. Somehow it signals to me that I'm taking care of myself and that there's like just a little bit of a protection, creating a bit of a boundary to kind of move into what's next. Not in a armor sort of way, but like more of a just holding my own boundaries kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I love this too as well. I remember I was at the Lean Startup Conference maybe about two years ago and there was a group of us doing lightning talks. Right? And a lightning talk is like you've got five minutes. Uh, generally, you can have slides or no slides, but you've got to get up there, present an idea, 
I've done this. Yes. Right. It's, it was called a Pecha Kucha when I did it. Right. Okay. Same it's, idea. It's really hard. Right. Frightening in many cases. And you, you know? can't go back once the slides start. Right. right. It's game it's on. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the most interesting things that when we were backstage, there was like 10 speakers. And one person was like, oh, uh, you know, before I go on stage, I do this thing called a power pose. And she's like standing up there, like forcing her arms out and sort yeah. of like making loads of noise. And to me, I was sitting there going, this is so interesting. You know, like this is the getting ready, the moment of getting ready for these situations. And I think like I thought that was really fun and yeah. we all ended up doing and there was like 10 people all sort of around. And in a way that created some of this community, it created vulnerability. We all were yeah. there together going, hey, this is actually going to be really hard. And just by I these small that. little acts, you know, it yeah. started to bring everybody together and yet give us a bond, make us feel ready, make yeah. us feel safe. So a really good example of that that we suggest in train and fits for some teams is starting a meeting with a quick mood check, right? So what's the number of emotions that kind of are in your sphere right now, right? Quick mood check, ready and focused, quick mood check, headache and a little cynical, quick mood check, right? It's a nice ritual to kind of really get people to take that empathetic pause and know what's going on around the table and adjust accordingly. But your group power posing, it's similar. Like, let's do this together. Let's yeah, was, connect to get done what we need to get done. Yeah. It's super interesting, you know, because mm. we spend so much time, maybe it's a meeting, uh, you're preparing for that. And how effective are meetings? Most people will say terrible. Mm. But like having these rituals, and I also find in a lot of companies is there are rituals that they put into place that make them uh, successful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It may be reflection exercises at the end of a meeting to say, did we achieve any of the outcomes we aimed, wanted from this meeting? Or yes. again, helping people check in to say, you've just shown up in the meeting. What's the top of mind for you? Something from the last meeting? Great. How can you just recognize that, park it, and then refocus? That's right. I mean, great cultures, that's what it is. It's these building blocks of great systematized rituals. That's what it is. Yeah, because I think especially at the moment, there's so much vogue in, let's just say the benefits the companies offer. Right. You can have a, a table tennis uh, in the free lunches. Right. Just live here. Unlimited right. That's holidays. WeWork's vision. <laughs> right. You know, right, and, right. and all of these sort of the behaviors, the unintended consequences of those sorts of things. Mm. You know, all the research shows that the more time you tell people you can take as much holidays as they want, the less holidays they take. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious about like some of the things that you've identified are good behaviors that teams and companies should be thinking about like to create the space for inspiration to happen. Yeah. Working reasonable work hours. We actually have to acknowledge we have human systems. Like I love Ariana Huffington's work. We love Leslie Perlow's work. Her book is called Sleeping with Your Smartphone, right? She did a longitudinal study that showed that in professional services firms, whole regions that stuck to 40 to 50 hour work weeks were significantly more productive than 70 to 80 hour work weeks. Like we need think time and we need sleep and we need to socialize. That's who we are as human systems. And so I think it's really important to design some kind of sequencing that lay some framework for how much we really should be working, how much we should be spending time on work. Yeah, like I think there's lots of really interesting research emerging at the moment. I think 
Microsoft just trialed a four-day working week in Japan mm. and their productivity went up 40%, which is... I haven't seen that. That's exciting. That's exciting research. It is research. absolutely yeah. exciting, yeah. But I think it's like companies want to do this, but I often think they don't know how or mm. the experiments to try them in their company feel so tough to do that they're afraid if they try something and it doesn't work, what's going to happen? Mm. So when you're like helping companies go down this path, what are some of the sort of guardrails you help set up for them so they can start to try and figure out what's going to be the best things to help them? A lot of the time, I'm sure a lot of management thinking would just get a room with beanbags and people can use post-it notes and Sharpies and jump around and they're suddenly going to create these amazing products that are going to change the world. And they do that and then everyone complains why don't they can't go back to their cubicle and sit and sit with their headphones on and not talk to anybody. Right. I mean, we often say, I love this line and I probably stole it from somewhere, but I couldn't tell you where. And it might be mine. That's like, I have no idea. Like if it was easy, they would sell it at Bed Bath & Beyond. Like this is not easy. It's not a beanbag. It's not logo wear. Like culture is the hardest thing you'll ever build in your company. It's the hardest thing you'll ever design. It's the hardest thing you'll ever hold on to and most precious. I totally agree. You know, mm -hmm. and, and one of the things I always see a lot with really exceptional leaders is the most impactful thing that they can do is like role model the behaviors that they're asking other people to do. When I work with a really well-known bank and COO of the company will go down and sit with the graduates on day one and give them challenges that he's working on uh, to see how they would solve it just so he can learn like what new technologies these people use what are they doing differently but it has such a great cultural reference for the company because mm -hmm. especially in these highly bureaucratic structured companies when you've got someone at the very top sitting with someone at the very bottom as they might be perceived and creating that as an experience where they can get some inspiration from this new thinking, this new people, these mm. new different approaches. Yeah. It's super powerful. And I'm curious on some of the things you've seen or maybe some of the stories of the people you've been working with that they've done to try and inspire action in their companies. So I completely agree with you that the building blocks of any change are the leaders and the teams, right? And so we definitely aim to start at the highest level that we can. And the other model that we have found works is to work within a division and just run an amazing experience through that division and then have it catch laterally. But for change to sustain, it is individual leader behavior. It's And, and the tricky part with that is sometimes you have to start with like really getting alignment and clarity and commitment from those leaders that they have to unlearn. And the desire for it has to be bigger than the fear of changing, essentially. So that's where inspiration comes in. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, I think always trying to find these tipping points. It's interesting for people, right? Because they can see, is this an opportunity for me to help bring some inspiration to the mm. team? Mm. Or can they see that it, that part is lacking from the team and then try and help them discover it? Yeah. One of my favorite scenarios that happens often is a leader is nervous to work with us because they don't think that they're inspiring. 
who doesn't have that imposter syndrome? Right? right. That's a great one. Yeah. Or they think that somehow inspiration is analogous to like charisma or something like that. Or you either have it or you don't. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're either born that way or yeah, exactly. And we just bust that up so fast and we help them see their strengths and like see how unique and inspiring they are. And sometimes they have to own it and dial it up, but we help get really clear about what they're, have them create a leader impact statement. And so what would be that like a leader impact statement? What would be like a tool to help people realize that they are actually quite inspiring for people? Yeah. So we do the leader impact statement a little bit further down the road. I mean, one of the first things we do, I mean, we, of course, can do a 360 and we do a unique 360 that's called a shift positive 360. So it's really about the difference. It's a qualitative tool where we invite dialogue about the difference that that leader makes in the organization and their strengths, along with what are things that they could shift that would make a significant difference. But it's a system-oriented 360. So it's really about how the system is supporting that leader. So that's kind of an early tool that we do. And then Another one that we love is the via character strengths inventory. So this is not what you're good at. It's not what you've learned through formal training. It's actually like what you value and who you are from a character and values perspective. And so usually that report is really eye-opening. Like, oh my gosh, my curiosity is valued oh, hell yeah, that's one of the reasons you were chosen for this role. And can't you see it now? And then, oh, yeah, yeah. So it can be wildly liberating. Yeah, I think some of these things as well are innate capabilities are often our biggest blind spots because are just our natural behavior. It's and, the water we swim in. Yeah, exactly. You know, and from times where I've had to do examples like 360 feedback, where I've got some really interesting insight into both blind spots and things that I thought was, doesn't everybody just do that? And I think it's really important to recognize that, like helping people go, well, am I inspiring? Often by just being yourself, you're inspiring people. That's our philosophy is like, it's really about being authentic. It's about understanding your strengths and knowing how to use them. So I'm curious, is that what a lot of the research backed up is that the people who sort of show up as themselves, not trying to be somebody else, actually, that can be inspiring to others. It's huge. It's huge. There's a whole domain of literature on authentic leadership, on strengths-based leadership. And then another part of our core philosophy is around situational leadership, which has been around for forever. But it's even more critical now. I mean, just given how agile leaders must be, how quickly they need to be able to flex and shift and pivot and all of it based on the situation, based on the organization, based on the project, the product. So our core, core foundational way that we train leaders is through a 3D situational leadership model so that they locate themselves and can shift accordingly through their bodies, through their emotions, and through their minds and language. And that model, I think, is pretty unique. It came about 15 years ago, but we've gotten some really great feedback from folks in the field that it's quite innovative in the domain of situational leadership and supporting leaders to be authentic, but to also really, really have range when they need it. Yeah, this sort of pops up for me quite a lot. A lot of the doctrine that we're 
condition to about great leadership is you know all the answers you'll get up on top of the mountain and give the great speech and people will be crying they're so inspired and they'll want to like run through walls for you and I don't think anything could be further from the truth. It's completely true. And so some of the engines we've identified in how we get inspired with and through others, one of them is fallibility and vulnerability. I mean, vulnerability, we hear about this tons in organizations now, but like just actually needing other people is completely essential, magnetic. Like if you don't need other people that you're an island, you're alienating inherently so well well, this is exactly what happened to me in a meeting this morning actually no way (laughs) i was sitting in there very well-known company group of senior executives sitting there and then the one person who sort of puts themselves out there and says you know i know i'm gonna have to change i probably don't have the skills i think i need to be successful as we tackle this initiative. And they're attacking a a pretty bold initiative to try and transform their whole company. Wow. And I'm just sitting there going, I'm all in with this person. Sign me up. You got your vote. Right. I'm going to run through walls with this person Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they have humility, because they recognize where they need help. Mm. The amount of times I've been in similar meetings where I'm just listening to someone tell me how it's all going to be done and how they saved the last company they were in and they're here to save the day again. Like I'm tuned out, yeah, you know, and, totally. and there's nothing inspiring about that. Yeah. You're making me think of like a really important unlearning story that happened in my career. I was in a pretty bad car accident and it was simultaneous with taking a really big, new stretchy job that I didn't believe I was qualified for and didn't know how to do. Good and, on you. Yeah. Right. And so you like within the same month, couple months. And in this car accident, it was right here in the Bay Area on Highway 101. My car spun out of control and crossed four lanes of traffic head on. And I was pinned to the median in the wrong direction. I was okay. I was so blessed that I wasn't more injured. I did have two broken arms. My arms got stuck in the steering wheel. And so immediately, and this was 15 years ago, there was no voice recognition software, right? There was nothing. And I literally overnight, it was the most crazy leadership accelerator you could imagine. I literally overnight had to learn how to delegate, how to truly delegate. And it was humbling and horrible and difficult, so uncomfortable. And two months in, the woman who was really my right hand and she came to me and said, you know, I need to give you feedback. We have, have some feedback to deliver on behalf of the team. You are a better leader with two broken arms. <laughs> and of course I wanted to scream oh, and cry so and good. tantrum because like, it's not what I wanted to hear with my cast coming off. And, but I I'm really- ready to get back in the game. Right? Got my yeah. two arms back. But boy, did I take that to heart. I mean, it was so brave of her to say, and on some level, I think I knew- But I think when we need other people, our own self-importance in our own minds is in question or it's confronting. It's like, but I'm a producer and it served me well. And like we're pushing up against so many, I'm hesitant to say societal norms, but Mm. they're, they've been created around an archetype of maybe what was successful in the past or maybe what worked, who knows if it ever worked, Mm. but it's very tough to be pushing up against these sort of what are considered norms 
when you're trying to do something different or and our identity is so tied to what we do, what my job as a leader, I must tell people what to do. I must put mm. the team, uh, this is what needs to be done when and how and have the answers for everything. And and yet again, like what we continually see with like truly amazing leaders is that they're setting up the circumstances for other people to be successful. And your story of being in a constraint to a certain extent is what helped you learn to relearn that. Yeah, it did. It was hard and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But it's also one of the engines that we found in circumstance that didn't totally surprise us, but then the next one that we found did. So one was overcoming adversity, right? Overcoming constraint and came through really loud and clear. There are numbers of CEOs who the most inspiring thing to them is to hear someone tell them they can't do something or like to hear the word no. We heard that a lot. And it started when they were seven, like somebody told them they couldn't do something. And then there was inspiration contagion from there. But then the next engine that presented that was also kind of on this darker side and like a little bit more surprising side was around failure and loss and grief. And that one kind of took us a little bit by surprise. So elaborate a tiny bit on that. What mm. what is it that I tried something and it didn't work and I want to find a way to get past that or? Not usually. It actually doesn't usually sound like I want to get past it. So for instance, I interviewed a CEO last week who had a wild failure about five years ago and he's since bounced quickly. And I mean, he... He basically says, if you're not willing to risk everything, why get out of bed? I mean, he's just really hyper risk tolerant and like, what are we living for? He was a fun interview. But the way that he talks about the wild failure was that he actually had to look himself in the mirror during that time and make sense of who he was and his life at a really deep level. And so he keeps that close so that even now that he's you know in a high time and things are going great and he's riding the wave he actually wants to have that groundedness of reality and honesty and humility that he had when he was at the bottom i think that's a really powerful force actually mm -hmm. in many respects i've started a few companies and killed a few companies <laughs> yeah and failure sucks there's no two ways about it you meet one or two people who are like yeah whatever i don't care about it but i think for a lot of people it's a grind yeah. you know and when a lot of your assumptions and aspirations turned out to be incorrect and you're sort of like laid bare there mm. at, at rock bottom it's hard to sort of go yeah failure is awesome at that point right and i think holding on to those feelings especially for me when i, I started my first company and it didn't work out you feel shame mm -hmm. you feel fault you mm -hmm. feel things that you could have done better and why is a tough sort of question and you can only look at yourself but again i think one of the most powerful parts about that is if you can find a way out by again doing smaller things to get momentum again and mm -hmm. That's actually been one of the most formative things for me personally is having a belief that even when I'm at sort of rock bottom, that there's a resiliency and a way out by starting to take mm -hmm. action, not falling back to just feeling that it's all wrong. And that's a really powerful force, I think, to have this belief that I certainly have in myself now. It's like, yeah, things will be tough, but I can find a way out. 
And I think it's kind of interesting to hold on to that memory because it's a huge, as you say, inspiration for me to say, even if it gets tough and things will go up and down, like nobody rides the way forever, mm. I have belief of myself I can get out again. Yeah. Another just, I think, beautiful and important interview that we did was with a man named Joe Casper, Dr. Joe Casper, who was an MD, and he lost his son to a terminal illness and battled trying to diagnose it for a really long time and couldn't do anything about it. There wasn't a way to cure it. And his son, Ryan, and lost his son when he was 19. And interviewing Joe, he said, Jen, I keep my grief close as a deepest source of inspiration. Like I keep my grief for Ryan close as a deepest source of inspiration and a way for me to be bold and courageous in the world. And I was just like blown away, right? Like to hold on to pain and to channel it for good. Yeah, I think yeah. It's, it's pretty powerful. You know, like I can think of many of examples, like people who've come up in terrible circumstances and use that as a motivation to sort of propel them forward. It's one in a billion, but it works for those people. I don't think it is one in a billion. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but there's a concept called post-traumatic growth that we talk about in the book. And we think inspiration is, it's baked in there when people can reflect on traumatic events or loss, failure, grief, when they have the opportunity to reflect on it and make sense of it in ways that can serve them, what happens is they actually get stronger. And I think this happens more than we know. Post-traumatic stress was well-resourced in terms of grants based on the war and our government. And post-traumatic growth is also something that we just need to know more about. So Jen, the question I have is, what's the best way to help people identify what's going to inspire them? What we talk about and think about is kind of a broad topic. And so one of the ways that we help people make sense of it and really apply it quickly, conceptually, and through action is by saying that inspiration actually helps you have your best days more often. And then we run through a bit of an exercise and a bit of an experience around what does your best day look like and why? And what are the results of a best day? What would you notice? What's the evidence and why? And then to really look at how do you have a hand in creating your best day? Because what we find is almost like a fingerprint, inspiration's really personal. And so best days are really personal. So when you ask like what goes into a best day for you, the variety of responses is really quite amazing. I mean, there are patterns, but I mean, from steel cut oatmeal to like, if I have 15 minutes to think through what really needs to happen in each of the meetings, if I have 15 minutes to prepave my day, it makes an enormous difference, right? I mean, we hear that at high levels a lot. Like I, I, either the day is running you or you are running the day. Yeah, I think this is great like advice and tool that people can actually do. I think this idea of reflection or mm. time traveling and writing down like what is good for me? Because mm. as you said, we're inspired by so many different things. What inspires you versus inspires me versus so I think this is a great way for people to like understand what does inspire them, what helps set them up for success 
identify maybe some of the behaviors they hadn't seen. Yeah. And then working those into their sort of ritual of the day, I think is a great way for people to get started. Yeah. Yeah. Had it happen literally on the way over here. I'm traveling. I tend to have lots of really fantastic ideas when I travel for many, many reasons. And they're explained in the book, but it's where Lin-Manuel Miranda got his idea for, right, Hamilton. I mean, Sitting it's, in a hammock reading the book, right, right? That's right. So I try to plan enough integration and digestion time, but I hadn't because the ideas are coming in huge waves this week and I'm jotting them down as fast as I can. But I literally sent a note to Katie who like air traffic controls for us. And I asked her to block out as much time as she could next week because the ideas are coming so hard and fast that I need a place to land the plane. I need to like actually see what we can take action on and yeah. That's great to see you're practicing. I know, what right? You preach, like, right? Yeah. Good news, bad news. You can be too inspired. You got to pace it, <laughs> right? Like or it. else you might freak people out and take on too much. But it's the problem you want to have. So, looking to the future, then, what are some of the things you're excited about or you're looking forward to? Ooh, like in general, or yeah, absolutely, in the fields that you're studying or where. Yeah, um, work is leading you. But I mean, like dreamy, dreamy is that we start to work with companies and start to measure inspiration and then build designed, inspiring partnerships to increase it. That's really where it's at for us. Well, I think uh, being able to measure is always a really powerful step, I think, in helping people understand it and improve it. So I'm certainly excited to see how you start to tackle that. Thanks, Barry. Um, Yeah, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. All right, check it out. Okay, thanks.